0: Lord, I love you, Jesus. Praise God. While you're standing, go with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 2. The book of Acts, chapter number 2, verses 46 and 47. Remember, life groups start back tomorrow. The new, new semester of life groups, I know it's going to be awesome And I hope that you'll get involved in those. Remember Sunday morning, Sunday night. It's going to be a great day. A lot of great things happen in the morning show. Eight o'clock live online. And uh, just just, uh, thankful for all the great things that God is doing. Acts 2, 46, if you found it, say amen. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Everybody say in the temple. And from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me to teach your word, anoint our ears to hear God, I pray for the power of your spirit to move, confirm your word with signs following. Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 God bless you. Give the Lord a good hand clap as you're being seated tonight. This past Saturday night, my wife and I had the privilege of hosting our life group leaders in our home. I think we had between 30 and 40 people. And uh, we had a great time of fellowship. My wife cooked a great meal. And uh, I need to not think about that because I hadn't eaten supper today. And uh, if I think about it too much, the sermon will get shorter than it ought to be. But I shared with our team on Saturday night some of my thoughts on the relationship between disciple-making and life groups. I'm going to share some of that and a few other thoughts tonight. But I say it very often, as a matter of fact, I think somebody quoted it the other day, that if we want what the disciples had, then we have to do what they did. It's unreasonable to expect apostolic results without apostolic methodology. When you blend apostolic truth with apostolic methodology, you can expect to have apostolic results. If we vacate the apostolic doctrine and resist apostolic methodology, we'll never see apostolic results. Acts 2.42 tells us the primitive church's priorities. Acts 2.42 says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. It was the priority of the church. The church prioritized the apostles' doctrine. Amen. You might be able to build crowds without the truth, but you'll never build a true church without the truth. And so they prioritized apostolic doctrine. They continued steadfastly. They were committed to the doctrine. But they were not only committed to the doctrine. They were also committed to fellowship. And they were committed to apostolic sacrament and apostolic prayer. Acts 2.42 shows their priorities. Acts 2.46 Shows their methodology. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. We see here the two pronged approach of the early church in regard to their worship and discipleship. A lot of people in this generation don't believe in going to church, but the early church was daily in the temple. They were church going people. Amen. Y'all can say amen because you're here. They were daily with one accord in the temple. It's not enough just to be in the temple, but you got to be in the temple with one accord. And they were breaking bread from house to house with apostolic doctrine and apostolic methodology daily in the temple and from house to house, they had apostolic results. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The results came because they had the right doctrine and the right methodology. I used a quote back in December in one of our Wednesday night classes. I'm going to use it again. It's written by... Uh, a book, in a great book called Apostolic Imagination by J.D. Payne, and he wrote, and I quote, he said, the claim that only orthodoxy should be imitated and not orthopraxy belittles the apostolic church. To define the terms, orthodoxy is the original doctrine of the church. Orthopraxy is the original practices of the church. Payne said, That you can't just have the original doctrine and not the original practice. What he was saying is you cannot just believe what they believed, but not do what they did. If you want what they had, you have to do what they did. It's not enough just to know what they knew, you have to do what they did with it. Amen. Here's a fact of discipleship. People can have a good understanding of the doctrine. They can have a good understanding of the doctrine of salvation. They can comply with holiness standards and still not be true disciples. I knew that, that would take a second to settle in. You were afraid to say amen. It's like a child being able to tell somebody their address and phone number. But if you drop them off 30 miles from home, it doesn't mean they know how to get there. You can know what we believe and you can even know why we believe it, but still not be a disciple because discipleship is not an entrance examination where you just have to know the right answers. True discipleship changes us to the core of our being into his image. I know some people that can quote scripture. They look the part, but they can cut you down with their words in a second and not even bat an eye. That's not a disciple. That's a hypocrite. I'm supposed to be nice. I'm supposed to be promoting life groups. I'll, I'll mellow out. Maybe. Discipleship has to happen in four spheres of life. Number one, in our relationship with God. We should always be growing in our relationship with God. Number two, in our relationship with God's family, the church. And in our relationship, the third one is our relationship in our home life. And the fourth is in our relationship to our world it's our relationship with God, our relationship with the church. Our relationships at home and our relationship how we deal with the world. Just being able to quote scripture doesn't help you in those areas. That scripture has to get in our heart and in our mind. We have to be transformed by the word that we hear. Knowing words to songs doesn't make you a disciple. If you look the part of an apostolic but you can only get along with two or three people in your world. You've not been discipled. If you can quote every one God's scripture but you're rude and difficult and always belittling others, you're not a disciple. Praise God. You can be seated. You know, you can stop shouting. We got a lot of we got a lot of ground to cover. I pastored someone when I was in Indiana that man they were always at odds with somebody. They 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 were always at war with someone in the church. It was, at one time, it was the keyboard player. Then it was the organ player. Then it was the Sunday school teacher. Then it was assistant pastor. And uh, thank the Lord, they left the church before they got around to me. (laughs) They were constantly having struggles getting along with people. They could hardly stand people that no one else ever had a problem with. The truth was that at some point, the preaching and the scripture that we hear needs to get in our heart and change who we are. In all four spheres of life, our relationship with God, our relationship with the church, our relationship at home, and our relationship with the lost people in the world. Faith must find an expression in how we live our life. A person, as a person grows As a disciple, each sphere of their life becomes transformed. So we're striving. We're striving for apostolic methods. We're striving for apostolic methods. We're striving to try to become more like that early church so that we have the right method with the right doctrine so we can produce disciples like the early church did. If we want what they had, we have to do what they did. Amen. One of the major reasons the early church was so effective was because they infiltrated the basic fabric of society, families in their homes. It was a fundamental methodology of the early church to not leave church at church, but to take church home. The early church didn't go to church to be the church. They were the church. They viewed themselves as the church. So let me say that again. The early church didn't go to church to be the church. They went to church because they were the church. They were the church at home just as much as they were in the temple or in the synagogue. And so the idea that the main part of our relationship with God happens inside this room is the reason why modern Christianity is so weak and watered down. The church has to go home with us. And so we're all going to load up in a van and we're going to your house. But it was, fun, it was the fundamental methodology of the early church that I am the church, and when I go home, I take the church with me. And when I go to the marketplace, I take the church with me. And when I go to work, I take the church with me. I am the church, so I don't, I don't hang my church self on the, on the hook as I'm walking out and then pick it back up next time I come. So the idea, the mentality of the church, that's why they were daily in the temple and from house to house because they were always the church. Amen. So I think it's important that we underpin why we do what we do. Therefore, I want to talk a little bit about about our mentality on life groups, Why, why we do it, why we started to do it. And and the results that we've seen, we had the we had the uh, panel last week, and we had people talking about what life groups meant to them. Can I tell you that our new people that get in life groups stick, and our new people that don't don't. Tom Rayner he said in. Uh, In his book, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, he said that Christians who immediately joined small groups when they got into the church were five times more likely to remain in the church than those who were not involved. Just by simply inviting one of our new members to a life group can increase their odds of sticking five times. That is a powerful statistic. Amen. If you had had something that, uh, that if you did it at work, that it was guaranteed to make you five times more successful at your income, in a New York second, you'd do it. I'm talking about something that makes new converts five times more likely to stick because it works. It was the early church pattern. When churches were evaluated for strength and growth, certain patterns emerged. One pattern which emerged in the evaluation of new churches was the presence of thriving small groups. Christian Schwartz, in his book, Natural Church Development, he said, quote, if we were to identify any one principle as the most important, even though, our, even though our research shows that the interplay of all basic elements is important, he said, without a doubt, it would be the multiplication of small groups. Dr. Bob Weitzel, he said this, it is in small, intimate gatherings where most growth in Christian faith can take place. And so, what we're following here is a proven method that is a New Testament method of growing people and connecting people to their faith. Carl George said in his book, "How to Break Growth Barriers." That book went out of print. Brother Carson, I think I probably bought fifty copies of that book. I give them away. I. I I I started to say I loan them to pastors, but really I just give them away because I know they're not coming back. That part of their life's not discipled yet. It went out of print and they brought it, I guess I bought so many used copies of it that they brought it back in print. They re-released it. Carl George said in How to Break Growth Barriers, quote, the best solution which enables the largest number of people to receive personal quality attention occurs When a church systemizes care by building it into the life of the entire fellowship. For this to happen, caring groups must be developed. Brad Lewis said that the small group provides a safe place to ask questions, share personal junk, and shed tears. The purpose of life groups is to introduce people on a personal level to people that have the same goals of growing as a Christian that they do. Jim Rohn said that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so if you spend the most time with sinners, you're going to be a sinner. If you spend the most time with critical people, you're going to be critical. You spend the most time with negative people, you're going to be negative. And so you have to surround yourself with people that have the same spiritual goals and aspirations. And so one of the purposes of life groups is to connect you to people that will help you when you need help. I've often wondered why people that have marriage trouble ask people at work that haven't had a decent marriage ever. Praise God! That was some good preaching right there. <laughs> you got to surround yourself with people that have the same goals. The best way to connect people, when and Charles Arndt in their book "The Master's Plan for Making Disciples," they did a wide-ranging survey across the wide spectrum of Christianity. And the survey simply had a simple question, and the, the way that it broke down was they were trying to figure out how many friends somebody had to make in a new church to get them to stay. How many friends did it take? Because we've always thought if we can get somebody to get a friend, they'll stay. Do you know how many people that made one friend in a church were still there five years later? zero the breaking line is seven friends if somebody can make seven friends they generally will stay in the church it's hard to make friends when the music's going and the preacher's preaching you can make acquaintance and see people but it's hard to really build those relationships and so one of the reasons that we do life groups is because it helps people to come in contact with other people that have the same goals in their walk with God. The truth is, we've been doing small groups from, since the 1600s, the 1700s. We just called it Sunday school. But that's what we've been doing, right? Amen. Hello, test, testing one, two, test, testing one, two. It's what we do, right? We put our kids in a small group, and by the time they come out of that small group, they can tell you about Noah's Ark, and they can tell you about Jesus walking on the water. And it's not very... Almost every kid that comes through our our children's department, by the time they're done, they've got the Holy Ghost and been baptized in Jesus' name. They've been in a small group. My earliest memories of church... Is Sister Bessie Anderson. I've got a picture of her. She's been dead for 20, 25 years. She taught the same. She was everybody in our church's first Sunday school teacher, seems like since the flood. She taught the same class for 43 years. Two vanilla wafers and a Dixie cup of milk every Sunday morning, worth waking up for. It's amazing what you'll get out of bed for on a Sunday morning. She was the most patient lady. That, that old church, Brother Brad, that old church had a basement. It would flood every time it rained, and there would be a trickle of water come right through that room. She said, I was the only kid she ever had that stepped in the puddle every time. you got to be good at something. That small group impacted my life so much that at 51, I still have her picture in my phone. It makes a difference. It matters. Amen. Let me, let me, let me move on. Let me, go, let me go and talk to you for a little while if I can. I'm going to close in just a few minutes. But I want to our, shift our attention, if I can, to the church at Philippi. Philippi was an important city in the Roman Empire. And it was powerful because of its nearby gold mines. The church at Philippi was a well-grounded church. The Philippian church was described as rooted, fixed, and established. From reading Paul's letter to them and the reference made to the churches in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, the church at Philippi, though they were what the Bible called rooted, fixed, and established, they also were suffering persecution and poverty. They were struggling with a culture and an environment that was adverse to being a Christian in that city. Three things said about the Philippian church. Number one, they were faithful, Philippians 1 and 5. They were joyful and they were obedient. I found it interesting that Paul said that they were in poverty and persecution, but the words joy and rejoice are emphasized in Paul's letter to the Philippians. 104 verses in the book of Philippians, and in 104 verses, 18 times, Paul used the words joy or rejoice. According to the resource, one out of every six words deals with joy. One of every six verses. So they were in poverty and persecution, but they were joyful and faithful. You can grow as a Christian in a negative environment, you can become a disciple even under negative situations. It was in Philippi that Paul and Silas were on their way to prayer when they were harassed by a slave girl. The Bible said she was possessed by a spirit of divination. Her owners would use her for soothsaying and they would gain money from her witchcraft. This girl harassed Paul and Silas as they were going back and forth and so Paul cast the demon out of the girl. And when he did, the slave owners, the girl's owners that had made money off of her witchcraft, they got mad. They had Paul and Silas arrested and put in jail. They were beaten, thrown in the prison. And this is when at the midnight hour they sang, they prayed and sang praises to God. The Bible said that the jailhouse began to shake and the doors were open and God brought them out. And so... They had this powerful move of God, this powerful demonstration, this powerful church. And Paul, right at the center of it. When I think about the Apostle Paul, and I, and I went over this with our life group leaders Saturday night. When I think about the Apostle Paul and his life's work, if you read his writing, he's always bringing up names of people he had worked with, greet this person and that person and greet Aristarchus and greet this guy and that guy. And and he always goes through this list of preachers and people that he had worked with. He had this strong influence on the churches all over, Jerusalem, Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, Athens, on and on. He had this impact. He is the one figure of the ancient leaders of the church, of all the early leaders of the church, He was the one that seemed most obviously interested in mentoring other ministers. He often mentioned them, that he had trained Luke, Barnabas, Silas, John, Mark, just to scratch the surface. I think of all the people that Paul made contact with in ministry as an impact, understanding all these ministers and all these people that Paul had an impact on, I want to read to you a passage in Philippians chapter number 2, beginning at verse 19. He says in verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Very simple. This verse has no hidden meaning. It's very simple. I'm going to send Timothy to you very soon because i'm worried about you that i may be of good comfort when i know you're when i know you're okay i'll feel better so i'm going to send timothy to you to check on you and make sure to care and make sure everything's all right here's where i start getting worried about this passage verse number 20 for i have no man like minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. The New Living Translation says this about verse 20, I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares for your welfare. When you think of all the people Paul had come in contact with, Paul says, I only have one person that I really think will naturally care for you. Of all the preachers and all the ministers and all the churches that Paul worked with, he felt like there was only one person that really cared. It's a sad, sad statement. And so one of the reasons that it's important that we develop caring life groups is because we can't let this ever be said about this church. I told our life group leaders, most of them were there. There were a few that were unable to, but I think, like I said, we had between, I think, of around 35, between 35 and 40. I know one thing, that house was full. And I told them what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell them in front of you. I want to thank our life group leaders for opening your homes and giving your time to our church family. I want to thank you for caring for people. I want to thank you for caring enough about people's health spiritually that you're willing to take the time and the effort to allow people to come, to fellowship, to build relationships, to grow. And they don't only just open their house and eat and pray and talk a little bit. But when they start noticing someone in their life group struggling, it's the people in that life group that are the first ones to go and help. That's the purpose of the life group. I want to say thank you to everyone that cares, to everyone that calls and writes and sends cards and letters, checks on people, opens your home, cooks food, spends time. If you want to do what they did, if you want to have what they had, you have to do what they did. And so I don't only want to be apostolic in doctrine. I hope to God that we can raise generations that know what we believe and why we believe it. I hope that we can raise young people that can quote Acts 2.38 and Acts 4 and 12 and Acts 3.19. I hope they can quote Deuteronomy 6 and 4. I hope that they can talk about that there's, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I hope they know how to say I and my Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I hope they know how to say, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. I hope they can quote all those scriptures, but when it's all said and done, I hope that we don't only have orthodoxy, the right doctrine. I hope we also have the right practice. Amen. If we want what they had, we got to do what they did. Stand with me tonight. Get ready to launch. I think we had one life group last night already, so I guess tomorrow night's not the launch. Last night was the launch. We had a men's group last night got our youth life group tomorrow night maybe a few others got some Friday and Saturday but I want us to take some time and I want us to pray I want us to pray for our life group leaders the hosts and all the members I really wish everybody was in a life group it would add so much to your to your experience as the body of Christ Lord Jesus I thank you God for this great church for these men and women and young people and children that make up this assembly God I thank you not only for the strongest but also for the weakest God I thank you Lord Jesus for every member of this church God everyone No matter how much that some may struggle with certain things, they're a gift from you, and I thank you for them. And so, God, I pray for our life groups as we're launching this new semester, this, this relaunch at the start of the year. God, I pray for our life group leaders and directors. I pray, God, for our hosts, that you would give them the anointing of the Holy Ghost to care for the people in their life group. I pray let your presence fall in their homes and wherever it is that they meet. I pray, God, that your word would be rich and uplifting, that the time of prayer would be a time when burdens are lifted and strength is given and hope is given. I pray, God, that all of our new members that get into life groups, God, that they would grow and become better disciples for you. God, that all of our members that are faithful to life groups, God, that they would also receive the benefit of sharing their experience as a founded, rooted Christian that gives hope to the new person that they also can endure life's troubles and trials. I pray, God, let your anointing rest on this assembly as we do what we can to make disciples. Help us, God. Help us, God, to be a disciple-making church. From the moment moment that we drive on the property, God, help us all to be in disciple-making mode. We are ambassadors for you. Every member is a minister. Every member's contribution counts. God, I pray that you keep us together in one accord, daily in the temple, in one accord, and from house to house. God, help us to do your work and help us to be your church, not just in the building but everywhere and from house to house in Jesus name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed in Jesus name.